0: Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic, whole foods? Cultivate food security and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food
1: With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson.
0: Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Ellen Zakos to talk about wildcrafted cocktails. A former Broadway performer, she was once in the cast of Lemiz, Ellen is a Harvard graduate and has earned multiple certificates in horticulture and ethnobotany from the New York Botanic Garden. In her spare time, Ellen is a garden writer, photographer, and lectures at flower shows and for garden clubs around the world. She is the author of 7 books including The Wildcrafted Cocktail and Backyard Foraging 65 Familiar Plants You Didn't Know You Could Eat both by Story Publishing. Ellen was named a Great American Gardener by the Epcot Flower and Garden Festival, has served 2 terms as a national board member to the Garden Writers Association, and works with Remy USA teaching foraged mixology workshops across the US. Welcome to the show today, Ellen.
2: I am very happy to be here, Greg. Thank you.
0: Well, I'm excited to talk about foraged cocktails as well. So I'm (laughs) glad we're going to get into that. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now?
2: It was a circuitous route, I think. Uh And you know how everybody thinks somebody else's life story is more interesting than their own? To me, my route to foraging just seems like a normal life Uh but i know it doesn't to everybody else so i will tell you that when i was at harvard i studied comparative history and literature of 19th century england and france which was yes singularly useless but very interesting (laughs) Uh um and and when i was on stage um with Les Mis on Broadway, I did know all about the politics of the show. And again, you know, nobody cared, but it was interesting for me. And I got a plant as an opening night gift, which really changed my life. You know, uh, some people get bouquets of flowers. I had a friend give me a plant and I was hooked. It was like, come here, little girl, the first one is free. And (laughs) uh, uh, my life just started to be all about plants because I lived in New York City. It started out as house plants. Um, But then I went back to school at the New York Botanic Garden and started teaching there. I designed, installed, and maintained rooftop gardens in New York City for many years. That was my, started a company and, and that was my career until just about three years ago. When I moved to New Mexico, but during that time when I was working as a gardener in the city, my personal interests really shifted from the ornamental to the more useful, mm-hmm. um, and specifically food, because I love food. Yeah. And I think food and drink are, are wonderful things. Um, I think they build community. I community. I think they sustain us nutritionally. I think it's a whole lot of fun to play with. And while I'm not a vegetarian, I love cooking with Plant and mush plants and mushrooms because those are the things that I can forage for uh, it right. so so I, I come at this subject from many different areas from being an avid eater from being somebody who loves the outdoors and from somebody with a really strong plant background
0: yeah wow cool so your Wild Crafted cocktail book which we're going to mm-hmm. talk we're going to get to the end of that here in a little while uh, is is really an offshoot of a bigger conversation around foraging
2: Yes, it is exactly. And the the book before this is called Backyard Foraging and and my my s- sneaky my my cunning plan for that was to get people interested in foraging by starting in their own backyards yeah. so that they would have a little bit of success and say wow, this is really fun and interesting. Maybe the next time I hike, I'll look for some of these plants. Yeah. Um, because I really think success builds success. And once you realize how delicious some of these things are, you're going to want more. So I started out f- focusing more on food, but um, <laughs> I've always had an interest in spirits. Mm-hmm. And mm. the, folks, <laughs> the folks at Remy who make the botanist gin – saw my book and hired me to start teaching some foraged mixology workshops all around the country. Oh my gosh. And that, yeah, and that was, it's like, you know, the best job ever, <laughs> you get to travel and make cocktails and meet mixologists. Um, and uh, that really sparked, m- made me take this whole subject a lot more seriously. And that yeah. was back in, I'm going to say 2014. And and that was what made me decide to do this particular book.
0: Nice, nice, nice. So let let's step back from the, wildcrafted cocktail for a moment and define foraging for us.
2: Oh, that's a, You know what? Nobody. That's a really good question, and I put that in my um, in my lectures a Uh lot because you know sometimes when I tell people that I'm a forager, they think I'm a dumpster diver. Oh right. And I have, and I'm not. And I have, and I have friends who are, and I'm not going to judge that. But that's that's not what I mean by it. I mean technically, the definition of foraging is to go in search of provisions, whether you're talking about the Roman legions back in 100 A.D. Uh or today. I will refine that definition a little bit and say um, I am consider foraging to be going in search of non-cultivated um, edibles. Mm. So it may be something, it may be a, a crab apple that's growing in a city park, and if you pick up the fruit that's lying on the ground underneath that tree, that's foraging to me, even though it's not in the wild. It might be in Central Park. I've done a lot of foraging in Central Park. Oh, I'm sure. But, but it's, um, it's, it's when you are harvesting something that was not necessarily intended to be harvested as a food crop or mm-hmm. something that grows wild.
0: So, yeah, I was going to say, so it's just something growing wild. Mm-hmm. And mm. in in, mm. in some people's yards, they call those weeds.
2: <laughs> Much of what I forage for are considered to be weeds, um, which is nice because nobody's going to yell at you when you're picking them. Right. Um,
0: they might pack but- you on the back.
2: Yeah, but some of the things that I forage for are grown as ornamentals, and that's um, one of the things that I enjoy talking about most is plants that are familiar to most people who garden, Mm -hmm. yet they might not realize that these plants are also edible, and often in other cultures in other parts of the world are actually cultivated as edible crops, but not here. In the United States, we've forgotten that they're also delicious, and we think they're merely pretty.
0: Right, like?
2: Like hostas, for example. Oh. Yeah, which you probably can't grow in Phoenix, but hostas in big parts of the country are, you know, super beloved shade plants. Well, in Japan, they're cultivated as an edible crop, and they're often grown blanched the way you'll sometimes see asparagus grown blanched here to keep Uh the stems nice and tender. Oh, right. All sorts of examples like that.
0: Yeah, so tell us so everybody knows what blanched means cuz you usually okay. usually when blanched you you know you're putting it in hot water but that's not what you right. mean at all.
2: No, you're absolutely right. Thank you. Yes, if you ever see white asparagus in the store, mm-hmm. that is grown under a cover made from either terracotta or something that does not allow the light to penetrate. Mm-hmm. So the chloroplasts inside the plant are not activated and no chlorophyll is produced and that prevents the plant from turning green. So in this instance, blanched means grown, um, being protected from sunlight.
0: From the the sun. So it's not photosynthesizing.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cool. So backyard foraging, 65 familiar plants you didn't know you could eat. Mm-hmm. That's by Story Publishing, by the way. Thank you, Story yes. Publishing, for doing all kinds of great books. Uh, some of them in my yard that grow as weeds are Purse Lane, Lamb's Quarters, Mallow, Oxalis. Are any of these in your book?
2: Um, Purse Lane is in my book. What was the second one you said? Uh,
0: Lamb's Quarters.
2: Lamb's Quarters. You know, lamb's quarters might not be in my book, and uh-huh. I'm not sure that mallow is, but it's only because I was you know, they only give you so many pages, Greg, <laughs> right, to put in exactly. your book. There are so many delicious weeds out there, and you've just named four of them. Yeah. Um I love lamb's quarters. I just moved into a new house uh-huh. and was thrilled to see lambs quarters popping up all over the place. Yeah. And I know that most people would be out there um pulling them, but I'm actually watering them because I want them to get nice and big, and then I will harvest uh-huh. them and eat the leaves and also the stem can be um, cooked and and served as a whole separate vegetable.
0: Oh, didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was going to ask you what, you know, like with purslane, what do you do with it?
2: Okay, well, I actually love, there's a cocktail I make with purslane. I know we're not talking about cocktails yet, but I will just say. Please. This is a purslane in a blender with tequila, which gives it this emerald green color.
0: Oh my gosh.
2: And, um, and then I pickle Japanese knotweed, which probably doesn't grow for you in Arizona, it but it's a, it's a really invasive uh, plant in most of the country. So these are two weeds that combine in this very tasty, beautiful cocktail. And the name of this cocktail, you know, coming up with cocktail names is really hard, but I like this one. Uh-huh. It's, it's called Get Off My Lawn. <laughs> because they're weeds you don't want in your lawn. Right, of course. Yeah. There you go. Of
0: course. All right. So we've teased everybody enough. We're here to talk about the Wild Crafted Cocktail. First of all, I am sitting here looking at your book, and there is this absolutely stunning picture on the front cover. And when I first saw it, I said to you, is that cranberry? Right. Tell us about it. But it's not. No.
2: um, That cocktail is called Ode to the Grape because it's got three different kinds of grapes in it. Uh What gives it that bright, deep, rich purple color are um, wild grapes Mm -hmm. that I picked in Pennsylvania, down by the lake, it's kind of a swampy spot, and it gives me a great grape crop every year. Uh-huh. And that is combined with pisco, which is a grape brandy that is oh. um, made in both Peru and and Chile. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then the third grape is that uh, sugared grape that's used as a garnish. Yeah,
0: it's a very tasty drink. Well, oh, I'm sure if I, if I do say so myself. <laughs> I'm sure. So. I got to know the backstory behind this book. How did you get here and what's in the book?
2: Well, I have to tell you, Greg, the research for this book was a very, very difficult. I had to make a lot of cocktails uh. and do a lot of testing <laughs> and you laugh. But seriously, my husband, I'm an, I'm an early morning person. So I would oh. get up at like six or six 30 and yep. I would be, you know, trying the sassafras syrup with the rye, with the bourbon, with the whiskey, which is better? And Michael would stumble out of the bedroom at eight o'clock expecting a cup of coffee. And instead I would have like four cocktails lined up on the counter <laughs> saying, taste this, which one is better? So I really did very carefully test all the recipes in this book. Mm-hmm. But the the way it got started was that I was doing the work for the botanist gin and started Appreciating the flavors of different spirits much more than I ever had in the past. And since foraged flavors appeal to me for their uniqueness, oh, yes. uh, I thought that would be a great way to, to combine these two things that were so enticing to me. Mm-hmm. And the more you experiment or the more familiar you become with different spirits, you kind of just develop an instinct for... What is going to combine with each spirit in the best possible way? Mm. Um, You know, crab apples are something that I can harvest in great abundance, even here in Santa Fe. It's a dry climate. The foraging here is very different from what I was used to on the East Coast. But crab apples are fantastic. And I gather a whole bunch every fall and I juice them and I make a syrup and I uh, can that so that I have it to oh. use all year round. Um, and then you, do you want to do do you want to just guess what the best possible thing to combine with crab apples is the best possible spirit?
0: Um, gin?
2: Well, actually that's very good, but my favorite is bourbon. Oh. I think bourbon and crab apples are a match made in heaven. So you you know you just start experimenting you start saying hmm spruce tips what would they be good with let's try them with with vodka let's try them with gin which one do i like better and it's it's like a giant chemistry experiment only way more fun
0: yeah spruce tips i would guess that they would be more savory
2: um spruce tips actually have a very lemony flavor to them um and they do actually contain a lot of vitamin c uh and um you know, historically were used to stave off scurvy for sailors that were not able to travel with fruit. But um, if you put them in the blender with either gin or vodka, I actually like both, they give you this pale green liquid that has a little bit of, a tiny bit of resin, but a lot of lemon, Uh um, and it's a very (sighs) bright flavor, which I, I really like.
0: Nice. Guys, tell us about your favorite. Tell us about your favorite cocktail in your book.
2: You know, mothers are not supposed to have favorite children.
0: <laughs>
2: so, it's a, I, I, I will tell you what my favorite one is right this minute. Oh, good. Which it's probably gonna change, but um, I have become a big fan of rye. I love rye whiskey. Mm. There's something about it. I I've been a a single malt person for years. And I like bourbon, but rye kind of falls right in between them. And it also combines wonderfully with sassafras root syrup. So that is a cocktail that I really have been enjoying a lot mm-hmm. lately.
0: Well, go ahead.
2: No, okay. Well, the, uh, you know, it's coming – I don't know where you are, but where I am, the spruce tips are just starting to come out. Mm. And since we were just talking about that, I was thinking um, – Ooh, it's going to be almost time for me to make the Merry Woodsman, which is done with a, a spruce tip infused vodka, a spruce tip syrup, a little bit of elderflower liqueur and some wild ginger syrup. Um, and that to me is like a, a walk in the woods, all stuffed into a glass. I'm, I'm also very fond of that.
0: Wow. So when I get a, a copy of your book, I'm going to mm-hmm. be able to learn how to do all of these, Right.
2: You are At first. The book first walks you through, you know, just some cocktail making basics, mm-hmm. um, things, equipment you might want to have on hand, how to assemble a cocktail, and then it starts with, you know, simple substitutions, um, and eventually builds you up to creating your own combinations. Mm-hmm. But it gives you recipes on how to make the syrups and pickles and infusions, and then how to use those things that you've made in the finished cocktails.
0: Wow, cool. So when I was younger, I worked in a bar and, ah, okay. and, and we had something called that I had to make. I remember making it called simple syrup. Yes. And I noticed there's a, a, a section in your book about a couple of in, unusual syrups.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're simple syrup is, you know, a bartender's friend because it's just much easier to s- sweeten a drink that way than right. it is with, with sugar. And I do a lot of simple syrups with foraged materials, so mm-hmm. it could be a fruit simple syrup or an herb simple syrup. The two unusual simple syrups that you mention are: um, one is made from chanterelle mushrooms, which is very delicious, and mm. the other is made from carob pods. And you might have carob in the Phoenix area. We do, do you get? Yes. Well, I'm I'm going to be in San Diego on Memorial Day weekend leading a bitters-making workshop, and, and we're going to be using carob there because I love that ingredient, and there are very few places in this country where you can actually uh, forage for it, but you are fortunate, oh, yeah, Greg, I... and, and you can also do it in San Diego, so yeah. – those are two unusual ones that are, are really very simple to make.
0: Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, luckily, it grows wild here, so we don't, I don't even have to plant it. I just
2: that's nice. You know,
0: follow my nose. <laughs> um, you know, one part of the year because they're very uh, aromatic. Let me put it that way, when they're you know when they're blooming and making their pods. Ah. Uh, so I can get, carob pods. What I yes. can't. In fact, I was when you said the chanterelle mushrooms, mm-hmm. I was looking at at kindred. And he kind of got a funny look on his face, and as did I. It's like, hold on, a simple syrup out of mushrooms. Tell us about yes.
2: that. Yes. <laughs> well, um, chanterelles are something that I can f- forage for in this area, so yeah. so that's very nice. And unlike many simple syrups, I actually do the chanterelles. I bring them to a, just just below a boil um, in a simple syrup, and uh. let them simmer for about fifteen minutes. Or let it keep it warm for about 15 minutes, remove it from the heat, let it cool, and then reheat again and keep it warm for 15 minutes. And that sort of double heating brings out as much flavor as oh, possible. And then I also right. let it, I bring it, take it off the heat, cover it, and let it sit overnight, um, and then strain that syrup off. and and save that for the cocktails. And then I save the the mushroom pieces that were in there, which by this point have been candied by being in the syrup and they make a wonderful, of course, yes. And they make a wonderful garnish.
0: Oh, nice. I, you know, I'm sitting here listening to you and it's like the amazing amount of thought process that went (laughs) into, into doing this. It's like, this is so far out of my, you know, out of my reality. It's just, it's amazing. It's one of those epic things that you've thought through this. How did you come to this?
2: I became pretty obsessed with it. And I couldn't tell you how I came to it any more than um, I love food and I love thinking about different flavors. And mm-hmm. because Remy hired me to do this work, I knew a lot about the foraged flavors, but I didn't know a lot about mixology. I had never worked in a bar, mm-hmm. but seeing these mixologists and bartenders and the skills that they brought to it made me really want to learn a lot more about it. Um, yeah. so I started experimenting at home and then my publisher said, Hey, do you want to write a book <laughs> about everything you've been doing? Cause we think it's pretty interesting. And I was thrilled. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah cool. So anything else about the wild crafted cocktails book that you want to, that just, you know, it's that Epic thing that you want to share?
2: I want people to know that you don't have to be a hardcore forager to start out with this book. Uh-huh. There are a lot of things in here that are very easy to find and easy to make and there are even some ingredients that I forage for that you could find in a good farmers market or oh, of course you know spice shop. So if if you're intrigued by the idea of craft cocktails and seasonal local food, even if you've never foraged before, I would encourage you to pick this up and look at it because you can really incorporate those flavors into these beverages just as easily as you can into food. And, uh, you know, people love them. You give a party and you serve a wild crafted cocktail and People are very happy about that. Oh,
0: I'm sure. I'm sitting over here getting excited. It's like, oh my gosh, (laughs) how fun is that? So you mentioned a couple of things that I kind of want to touch on. You've mentioned the botanist gin a couple of times. What is that?
2: Mm -hmm. The botanist gin is uh, a gin that is brewed in Scotland, and the brand is owned by Remy USA. Got they it. make Cointreau and a bunch of other spirits. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's remarkable, or one of the things that's remarkable about the gin, is that it is made from 22 foraged botanicals that are harvested on the island of Isla, which is off the west coast of Scotland. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and I had gone to Scotland for my wedding anniversary. My husband is a McDonald's, so we, we went there for... Uh, wedding anniversary. And, and I had had the botanist gin in a restaurant and thought, oh, this is so tasty, but I didn't know the backstory. Uh-huh. So when, when they contacted me back in New York, it was great because they didn't have to sell me. And and I didn't ever have to sell anything that I didn't believe in because I it is my absolute bar none favorite gin. And I think all those different foraged flavors really oh create God. something unique.
0: Oh, I'll bet. Yeah. I'll bet. Okay. How cool is that? So How does one go about finding your mixology workshops? You're going to be in San Diego over Memorial Weekend. What, you know, how do we find you?
2: I am. Well, um, if you go to my website, which is Uh www.backyardforager.com, there is a section there that, um, shows you where i'm going to be and what i'm going to be doing and Mm -hmm. i will be in um san diego at a shopping center called flower hill which is doing all these plant related events for the month of may Oh, cool! and i'll be teaching a bitters making workshop i know there are still a couple places spots left in the workshop Uh and then in early june i will be at the mother earth news fair in burlington vermont so i really i like to go i go all over the country because um I really enjoy talking about this stuff. It's really I, exciting to me.
0: I can tell you are lit up about this. Yep, it's making it fun to chat with you. Good. <laughs> so I want to talk about foraging and forage safety. Yes, because uh, you know we we you may not have all heard stories out there, but I I've heard some stories in the past where you know people were out foraging and they ate something wrong and it wasn't a pretty picture. So no.
2: Yeah. You don't want to be that person. You don't, you don't want to be the headline, you know, family of six killed by poison hemlock. That is not where you want to be. Um, so my number one rule and, and really any foragers number one rule is do not put anything in your mouth. If you are not 100% sure what it is, period. I have passed up mushrooms, which I thought I knew, and then I got home and I found out I was right and I could have kicked myself for not picking them. But it is so much better to do that than to eat something that is going to make you sick. Yeah. And and there are plants that will make you sick. There are plants that will kill you. And there are mushrooms that will do the same. So you really need to know what you're harvesting. Yeah, And then – Beyond that, you need to be careful about where you're harvesting from. You do not want to harvest from a golf course or a botanic garden where chemicals are used to keep the plants looking absolutely perfect. You don't want to harvest from right next to a busy highway because um, there are particles in truck exhaust and automobile exhaust Mm. that settle out of the exhaust, uh, settle to the ground, and then can be absorbed by the plant roots. And these are not things that can be washed away. Right. So I know people say common sense isn't very common, but you definitely need to really evaluate um, where you're harvesting from before you pick something. Yeah. And one other thing about on the safety note, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any food allergies, Greg. I am fortunate in that I don't. Mm-hmm. But, but if you do, you always need to be careful about trying a new food, whether it's something that you oh, bought at yes. the grocery store or something that you've foraged for. Mm-hmm. And if you know, for instance, that you are allergic to aspirin, then you're not going to want to eat wintergreen, which contains salicylic acid. All right. If you know that you're allergic to cashews or mangoes, which are related, you might want to stay away from sumac, which would be a real tragedy since it is delicious, uh-huh. or just try a little bit at the beginning, because right. um, when you know that plants are related, it's possible they might have some of the same things in them that you, you could react to. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. So you brought it up. I'm back looking at your book. This is an amazing mm-hmm. book, by the way. And you have something in here called a sumac spritzer.
2: Yeah. Sumac is a great cocktail ingredient for so many reasons. First of all, it grows – you know, I think it grows in every state of this country, one kind of sumac or another. There are several sumacs that are are really tasty. Uh, It's very easy to identify. It combines – you can make it into a syrup. You can make it into a soda. You can actually directly infuse gin or vodka or rum. With it, it's a, a very versatile tart flavor, and it's beautiful. It's got this deep red color, yeah. so it it's not only I mean it feeds the eyes as well mm. as the palate. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I always get asked, but isn't sumac poisonous? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I tell people any sumac with red berries is. safe. I mean, unless you're allergic to it, but, uh, because poison sumac has white fruit and the Ah. fruit clusters hang down from in between the leaves. Whereas sumac has terminal upright red fruit. So unless you are blind, you will probably not make that mistake. Perfect.
0: Right. Exactly. And
2: it would be hard to forage if you were blind. I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it would be hard.
0: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay, cool. So, and I'm sure you cover this in your books, right? the I do. part yeah
2: yes yeah. absolutely yeah
0: exactly so if you know for me i've never foraged for cocktails before except mm. except at the bar where does one start
2: tell me what's your what's your favorite cocktail
0: all right it's a simple one rum and coke
2: okay rum and coke i'm just thinking what do i do with well that's not a simple one. I was going to go with the the Chanterelle rum cocktail has your name all over oh. it. But I think the simplest way to start is with a, a substitution that makes logical sense. Uh-huh. So y- you might not know this, or you might know this, but sassafras root was one of the original flavors in root beer. Of and course. So, So if you were going to do something, a a spin on a rum and coke, you might make a sassafras syrup, which is also a common soda flavoring, and try that with rum and see how that works for you. If you were a martini drinker, you might think, okay, well, what could I use instead of traditional martini ingredients? And one of my favorite things to do is to infuse the vodka with a mustard leaf, which gives it a nice savory sort of horseradishy flavor. And then instead of garnishing it with an olive or an onion, I use a pickled field garlic bulb. So you can think about different, uh, very simple substitutions just to get you started.
0: Wow. Wow. So the book is called Wild Crafted Cocktails, and it's by Story Publishing, written by Ellen. So, you know, get your hands on that. We'll have a link on our show notes page for it. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it
2: you know i i kind of hate you a little bit for asking me this question uh-huh. because i i and i don't i've certainly failed in my life i don't want to say that i i haven't uh-huh. but i may have just blocked it from my memory for for self preservation so i don't think this is really what you're going to call a failure, but it is something that I took a life lesson from. That's, and, there you go. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to go with that. My first career, I moved to New York to be an actor, and by most people's standards, I had a certain degree of success. I mm-hmm. did Les Mis, I was on Broadway, I was in the original cast of Falsettos, I had a really good time. But I loved the work, I didn't love the life that went along with the work. Yeah. Because your life was not your own. Right. And you might be at an audition on a Thursday afternoon and you're going to get on a plane the next morning to go visit your mom. And they say, can you come back on Friday afternoon and dance? And you're like, no, I can't. I have a life. And it was really getting to me. And that was at about the same time that I started to work with plants professionally I got a day job you know some people wait table I got a job in a plant store <laughs> and one thing led to another and I st- started to get some clients who had indoor plants they wanted taken care of and some greenhouses up in the Bronx and I got a really good audition and a callback and a second callback and instead of being happy I said oh but who's going to take of care of the greenhouses I'm done and I knew at that moment when faced with that choice – I did not get the job, by the way, so I didn't even have to make the choice. But I thought I was going to have to, and that made me examine you know, what I was doing with my life and how fulfilling my work was. And yeah. even though I liked the actual performance, I didn't like the life that went with it. And, um, and so I quit show business yeah. and went back to school at the New York Botanic Garden and really started to learn everything I could about plants. And that was a much more satisfying way to live for me. And I, I truly believe that if there's any way you can swing it, you need to love your job because you're going to be doing it every day.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. I had this uh, realization. So, you know, I was doing the growing food and I was actually into aquaculture in the 70s and early 80s. Oh. And, and in the middle You know, in the mid 80s to the mid 2000s, I was in technology and along about 1999, 2000, it hit me. It's like this. This is not what I love to do in the world. Yeah. And so it's it's a really good day when you get there, I think
2: hmm you know, But like, it's not always easy to get there. Right. And and not everybody has the luxury of getting there. And yeah. I, I realized that I was very fortunate to be able to stop doing one thing and take some time to learn another skill. But it, it was really important for yeah. me and for you, too, obviously.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I was incredibly blessed because I, I started a software company in the late 80s. And by the early 2000s, it was, you know, kind of on autopilot and making, you know, enough money for me to live so that I didn't really have to work. Mm -hmm. And that's when I went back to, you know, I went back to Arizona State University and I got a bachelor's and a master's degree and, and, you know, in this stuff.
2: That's great.
0: Yeah. That's great. And the the reason I'm really pointing this out for everybody is that please start looking at your life and asking yourself whether you love what you do. And if it doesn't get you up in the morning and fly you out the door or send you to the kitchen (laughs) making up cocktails... Yeah. Start thinking about doing something else.
2: Yeah. And it doesn't matter how old you are. You right. know, when I started thinking about making this change, my father was like, but you're 40 years old. How can you, <laughs> you're supposed to be decided by now. And I was like, dad, it's not like that anymore. Yeah. So even if you think, oh, I'm so committed to this one path, I really don't think you have to stick with a path if you're not happy on it.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what do you consider your biggest success?
2: Oh, I think my biggest success has been not unrelated to my biggest failure in Mm -hmm. that I was able to create a life that balances all the things that I love most, Mm -hmm. which is being out in nature, working with plants, having the freedom to travel and spend time with my husband and with my family, not be at a desk all day. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's a path that you really have to create. You have to carve it out for yourself and you have to say, this is what I want my life to be. And then you have to make it that way. Yeah. And I think I've done that. And and that feels really good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what drives you?
2: Hmm. I am a perfectionist, always in search of deliciousness. <laughs> Uh, and I will try, I will try anything if somebody tells, as long as I know, as long as I know it's safe people, I know it's safe, but, um, I, I love to experiment. Um, I get a real adrenaline rush out of that. And I think I'm driven by wanting to avoid the normal, the usual. I like, Mm. I like trying things that not everybody has tried. That really appeals to me.
0: Beautiful. So is there a book that's been impactful for you?
2: Yes. I will say, and I know that I've written two foraging books, Uh and I should blow my own horn here, but I will say that I think the best foraging books, period, are written by a man named uh, Sam Thayer. That's T-H-A-Y-E-R. And he's written two books, um, and he's got a third in the works now. And Sam is the number one forager in, in this country, and he is Smart and funny, and an excellent writer. And when you read his books, it's you just want to get out there and try everything he's talking about. (laughs) So, when I was just starting to forage, uh, his books were highly motivational to Mm -hmm. me. So, if anybody's thinking about getting started, that his his books are a really good place to start. And then, of course, mine are also great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So, what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
2: I would advise people if they're interested in foraged flavors not to be afraid I have five nephews and I love spending time with them outdoors and they they always say to me if I if I ask them if they want to taste something well uh, how do you know if it's safe what if I don't like it and I say well you know what if you don't like it you spit it out mm-hmm. and I'm not going to give you anything that isn't safe you know we always circle back to safety because that's so important yeah but But once you're with somebody who's an experienced guide or once you've read a lot and taken some classes and you can recognize these plants, don't be hemmed in by recipes or things that other people tell you. Experiment with the flavors. Taste something. Ask yourself – what it would be good with you know they have that expression you see something in your mind's eye Mm -hmm. I say you taste something in your mind's palate think about the flavor think about what it might combine with just let go all of the the rules and your preconceptions about how to use these things and and try and unleash your creativity I think that's a really fulfilling way to go go out and play yeah exactly (laughs) go out and play go out
0: and play it sounds like you do that a lot
2: as much as I can.
0: Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Ellen.
2: It's been my pleasure, Greg. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. So how can our listeners get a hold of you?
2: My website is www.backyardforager.com, and I share recipes and tips on foraging for plants there. You can also find me on Facebook where I'm the Backyard Forager, and I um, I post there regularly as well.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, Ellen is the author of The Wildcrafted Cocktail and Backyard Foraging, 65 Familiar Plants You Didn't Know You Could Eat, both by story publishing. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash wildcrafted cocktail. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic whole foods, cultivate food security and feel more connected to the Earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to iwanttogarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or iwanttogarden.com.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast.